The Lord be with you. A friend of mine was once the building manager and groundskeeper for a really big and busy church. And this was a really demanding job because the congregation gathered in a hulking old structure with so many spaces and places to clean and maintain and repair. Let me tell you, he worked like an absolute champ, keeping that space in tip-top shape. Sometimes, when he had extra work, he would hire me, his broke student friend, for some extra seasonal help. One time we were sitting, uh, taking our lunch break together, and he told me this really weird story between bites of his tuna sandwich. He said, I figured out why we've been going through so much toilet paper. By chance, he'd run into a couple in the parking lot who apparently had a key to the building. And the husband was carrying a fresh, full, commercial-sized box of industrial-grade toilet paper. And he was loading it into the trunk of their car. So naturally, my friend stopped them to inquire... (laughs) What was going on, as one does? And both the man and the woman were offended. They responded with a defensive word salad, because really, who gave him the right to ask such a thing? When he couldn't get a straight answer out of them, and eventually they finally said to him, we've been attending this church for over 20 years. And with that solemn declaration, the couple climbed into their car and they drove away with their precious cargo stowed safely in the hold of their trunk. And my buddy just stood there in the parking lot, gobsmacked for a while. As those two travelers set out across the land, and what adventures they must have had with all of that institutional grade two-ply toilet paper. Some say you can still see them if you get them early enough in the day. As Matt Skinner puts it, the most attractive picture in the book of Acts is followed by the most repellent. Our story today starts off with another snapshot of that first gathered people shaped by this Jesus way. It's not unlike the glimpse of that we uh, glimpse of that people that we catch in the second chapter of Acts, a little outcropping of a new humanity in a precarious and beautiful and dangerous and complex world. And this is a fine scene. These people so deeply moved to share what they had with those who were in need, even going so far as to liquidate their assets selling off things like real estate so they might contribute to the collective effort. Side note, I don't know any biblical literalists that would advocate uh, communal living or the denial of private ownership, but we'll just pin that conversation for another day. This is a story about a new people, people filled with and moved by the spirit of creation. 
People who could see a different way to live in an intensely unfair society. And they were really leaning into it. This was a fresh, new moment. The gathered folks were taking turns celebrating as generous gifts were offered to the group. And those funds were brought forward and laid at the feet of the apostles. One heart and one soul, as the text says. What a great line. And what a joyous time of community gathering shaped by such trust and possibility and generosity. People so deeply committed to one another. If we were following the lectionary's handling, the lectionary being the orderly reading that a lot of churches in the world follow, the lectionary's handling of Acts 4 and 5 would have stopped right here. We would have settled into all those good vibes. One heart and one soul. Right? Why not stay there? But we aren't tracking with the lectionary right now. Because this is a summer sermon series in the book of Acts. And so we kept reading, didn't we, Noah? And it's not hard to see why those lectionary editors might have chosen to stop at the end of chapter 4. But I would say, editing out the next part, it seems to me, is a great disservice to the text. Because the contrast in this story is just that stark. And if we're going to read those tense and strange and distant ancient scriptures, we need to contend also with the awkward and weird and troubling bits, with all of their familiar and local and present realities. And so, caught up in that joyous energy of the sharing and giving service, a prominent married couple named Ananias and Sapphira sold some of their property. And they brought a portion of those proceeds to lay at the feet of the apostles. The thing is, they lied about it. They wanted to take all the credit for the sale, but they still wanted to keep some of the cash. Which, of course, was their prerogative. Nobody had forced them to give this money. This was all their choice. So was this vanity? Were they clamoring for social currency or influence? or Were they looking for clout? I could be wrong, but they do seem like the sort of people who might have liked to have a, a wing of the library named after them. But really, it's, it's so petty. It's so foolish. What a dumb way to make a name for yourself. Telling a lie about your donation amount? It stands to reason. Maybe a response or a pastoral conversation from somebody in the leadership is in order. Some words of wisdom, maybe, from one of the apostles. Maybe even a stern talk. But no, this morbid scene plays out with such a shocking sight because Acts 5 tells us that that man and his wife 
would receive a scathing word from the Apostle Peter. And then each of them, in turn, would drop dead. Their lifeless bodies carried out right past that big pile of money. No doubt, the final verse in our reading today says, Great fear seized the whole church. Can you imagine being the person who was about to give their donation right before that? What kind of gathering is this anyway? I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that we need to try and be an Acts 5 church. Death by Holy Spirit? I'm sorry, but that just doesn't add up. For me, and hopefully for you, there's a real theological problem here. Buried in this horrific text is the idea that God killed two people because they fudged the numbers on their donation. And think about it. What kind of apostle? Peter. Peter. A guy who knew a thing or two about making some terrible mistakes and some regrettable choices. What kind of church leader blasts someone that way and then carries on this strange funeral for them? The God of grace and mercy did this? The God of forgiveness who tells us to forgive over and over again did this? Not even a second chance? Is there a part of this story that we're missing, that we don't know, that we don't see? Or was the church at this time so fresh and raw that those first glimpses of corruption had to be met with swift and unflinching response? Was this shocking death of these two people in the early days of the church, was it a a signpost, a warning for us all? I can't say I've really found an entirely satisfying answer. And it's a good thing that this isn't the only voice in Scripture that we rely on. Thank God for all those other voices. Even still, though, if we can sit with this weird story for just a little bit, It's worth noting that we religious people can certainly speak to all the ways that people have used the church. Its language, its reputation, exploiting intimate gatherings of trust and vulnerability. People have used a body of goodwill like this as a cover for corruption or selfishness, Abuse, acts of degradation, self-aggrandizing power moves. Ananias and Sapphira might have been the first in a long line of dishonest scoundrels and scammers and abusers and con artists. People who can take that glowing story of safety and community and generosity and turn it into another sad affair. Wolves dressed as sheep have always been with us. They've always been with the church, even in the earliest days. 
Maybe that's a really big piece of the story. Because the church is made of our very best efforts. But we bring our worst selves here too. You and I can be so destructive. And the contrast is stark. How many times has a beautiful local expression of generosity and hope and common life together been turned into a desolate and sad ruin because of a few liars and abusers and their enablers? Or a pastor, a church leader puffed up with self-deception and pride. And there's money in this story, too. Money's there. And this is a reminder of the way that money in the church can be a generous offering, a beautiful gift, or a shameful display. Sometimes even in the very same story. Friends, the church is resilient. But the church is delicate and fragile. Either way, like the packaging on the box says, or the traveling Wilburys say, handle with care, friends. The ingredients for the best of the church and the worst of the church are always right here, and they've always been here. What a relief, then, to be assured time and again, week after week, that our worship and our work together is always framed by grace and mercy. Because I think the part of the story, the really awkward part of that story, is the part that reminds each one of us the ways that we have been petty and self-centered, careless with our words, neglectful of our care for one another, reckless with this delicate space of vulnerability and trust that we call a local church. Friends, great fear has not seized this church. Because it is this same thin space where we are embraced time and again. We are not struck down, we're lifted up. As together we confess and together we are assured by other voices from Scripture. As far as the East is from the West, so far has God removed our sins from us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for us. Friends, let us love as God loves and take heart. Amen.